Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. You know, at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, we are committed to teaching through books of the Bible. And several weeks ago, if you've been here um, this year, you would know that we've, we've wrapped up the book of Jonah. And we had a couple of um, topical and, and evangelistic updates and, and heard a testimony last week as well from Nikki to fill the gap. But now we're about to walk into a short book, the book of Nahum, which Joyce has just read out the first chapter for us. Here's our roadmap for the next couple of weeks. Part one, part two. So for today, what we'll be looking at is part one, the oracle. In three sections here, the character of God, God's character, verses two and three. God's actions, four through 14. And God's victory, verse 15. Next week, we're going to look at the outcome. Uh, If you're at all familiar with this three-chapter book, um, or if you're not, then just at least from what we heard read out earlier, it might be odd to think of it as something to do with comfort. Well, the name Nahum itself means comforter, means consolation. So that name is coming from the meaning of that Hebrew name of the prophet who bears uh, the title of this book. Clearly, the book of Nahum is a complex book. It's a controversial book as well. You see, on the one hand, it it contains uh, perhaps some of the most vivid and graphic accounts of ancient warfare in the entire Hebrew Bible. And that has led some commentators to refer to this as an unmitigated hymn of hate. But what is vexing about Nahum is that this so-called hymn of hate is at the same time one of the most sublime pieces of Hebrew poetry that we have. This is a powerful literary composition. We're not reading it in the Hebrew, but if you were, you'd see that structure and the way that it's formed. It's really quite beautiful. Some have actually then called it a a bad book written well. (laughs) But despite its literary excellence, commentators are just really not shy when it comes to their view of this book. And so hear these words from one Old Testament commentator, Rex Mason. Quote, will any of us ever have the courage to admit in a popular commentary that this book, Nahum, is rather a disgrace to the two religious communities of whose canonical scriptures it forms so unwelcomed a part? Look, at Calvary Chapel, we are not shy about our view of scripture. Uh, Get on our website, read our statement of faith, it's there. We believe that the Bible... The scripture is God's revealed word to humanity, faithfully transmitted through the ages and preserved for us in our various translations here. And that language gap, that time gap, that cultural gap, and frankly, that very large gap between the one whose words we believe this is, God and us, human beings, means that scripture is not always easy to understand. Sometimes it will shock us. It will unsettle us. But when it does, our immediate response should not be to call it a disgrace, but to press in and inquire of the Lord for understanding. So would you join me as I pray to that end? Heavenly Father, I am not naive about the reality of this book. I don't think anyone here is. It contains things that we would rather turn our face away from. This is one of those parts of the Bible that we would... um, prefer to kind of breeze through quickly, if at all, and then get to the good stuff. Lord, we confess that we we don't always understand your word, uh, your ways, for they are higher than us. So, Heavenly Father, I pray now that we would be honest with how we feel about a text like Nahum. I mean, here I am preaching something that I find, frankly, distressing. Help me. Help us. If ever we needed divine wisdom to navigate what it is you have had to say to us, it's through a text like Nahum. Lord, there is nothing higher, there is nothing more exalting, nothing more compelling than to know you. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with the full assurance that they have known 
you and that you know them. And Lord, it is through an encounter with your word that we get to know you better. So I pray that we would see in the debris of your holy judgment the beauty that is just justice. That we would see comfort for the oppressed and that all your ways are just. Move here, Lord, today as we navigate this, I pray. Amen. Uh, Look here straight up in verse 1. Bit of an introduction here. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. When it comes to prophetic books in the Bible, the authors typically set the scene by mentioning something like a historical king or, or landmark or something like that. But we don't get a whole lot here in the opening verse of Nahum. Just looking at here first at this vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Who is Nahum of Elkosh? Frankly, we don't really know. He's written this book so we can glean something of who he was from the, the words he's written. But beyond that, we don't actually know. As far as Elkosh, where's that? We don't really know. <laughs> Different sites have been suggested from Nineveh to Galilee, Judah, Capernaum. Capernaum actually means the village of Nahum as well. But there's no consensus one way or the other as to specifically who Nahum was and where he came from. What about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, major world empires in human history, this is one of the first. We have Egypt, we have Assyria, then came Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Roman Empire, and arguably we still have the Roman Empire with us today in one form or another in terms of the east-west divide that typically characterizes civilization. So these are the big fish in terms of world empires. Uh, And speaking of big fish, (laughs) you would have been, uh, again, familiar with the story of Jonah as we've just gone through that over these last couple of months. Remember, Jonah was a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he came to Nineveh to deliver a message very reluctantly. Well, here is Nahum, a prophet from the southern kingdom of Israel, which was known as Judah. And he delivered a message as well concerning Nineveh. One God, two prophets. One city, two messages. And these messages are quite different, as we will see. But before we do, I think it's important that we get out our compasses and our maps and get some sort of orientation here by looking at a quick timeline. Remember, Saul was the first king of Israel, but it was David who successfully united all 12 tribes of Israel to establish the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. And it was David's son Solomon who then consolidated Israel's rule there, building the temple. But after Solomon, Israel was divided in the year 975 BC, not into 12 tribes, but into two, 10 up north, two down south. And the two down south were Benjamin and Judah, and they adopted the name of the larger of the two, Judah. Then somewhere around 800 BC came this bloke named Jonah, an Israelite from the northern kingdom, called by God to preach repentance to the Assyrians in the bustling metropolis of Nineveh. And at that stage, the northern kingdom of Israel was still intact, but there were certainly antagonisms between Israel and Assyria, which was vying for power. Arguably, Assyria had the very first organized military in world history, like full conventional kind of warfare military. Well, less than a century after Jonah's mission, the northern kingdom of Israel, Jonah's homeland, was completely obliterated by Assyria in the year 722 BC. The people were butchered, scattered, and enslaved. Now, you can start to, like, feel Jonah's reluctance here, knowing the kinds of people that the Assyrians were. This happened a generation after his work. It's easy to be critical of Jonah's reluctance when we read the book, but this side of history, looking back, I've got to say I'm, I'm feeling him a lot more. Then 200 years after Jonah's mission to Nineveh, now the capital, Nineveh, now this capital city of Assyria, wasn't at the time Jonah went, but now it was the capital city of the once mighty untouchable Assyrian Empire, was ruined by a coalition of Medes and Persians. The history is fascinating. The Assyrians kind of paved the way for this. We won't go into it, maybe next week if we have time. 
But Nineveh was upended in the year 612 BC. So with all of that, Nahum's oracle, sometimes translated burden for referring to a weighty divine word, being predictive, it comes before the fall of Nineveh, right? We know that the fall of Nineveh took place in 612 BC, but we also know that it came after, that is, um, the fall of Nineveh came after the fall of Thebes because that's mentioned here in the book of Nahum. And the fall of Thebes, we know from other books and records, came in the year 663 BC. So somewhere between 663 BC and 612, this roughly 50-year window, is when Nahum's oracle was written, between the fall of Thebes and the fall of Nineveh. And again, it's, it's written by, by Nahum, who was um, from the southern kingdom of Judah. So the southern kingdom of Judah at this stage were not yet in, in exile. Assyria did not take away the southern kingdom of Judah. That was what Nebuchadnezzar did with Daniel in Babylon about 100 years after Nahum. If we're walking through the books here, we'd be seeing that in a couple of weeks. So this is not written to a people in exile, but a people who are threatened with that. Now, you might be wondering, what's happened here, David, between Jonah and Nahum, Right? I mean, Nineveh repented under Jonah's preaching. Jonah chapter 3, the king, the people. Jonah even includes the animals as this kind of hyperbolic way of making the point that Nineveh was wholesale in its repentance. And we wrapped up a number of weeks ago um, with something of a satisfying end to the story in that the outcasts were redeemed, the self-righteous were humbled, the credits went up, the curtains went down. Hollywood had its happy finish, right? Or so we thought. Uh, Jonah is not the end of the story of Nineveh, and that's why as a church we felt the need to include it here at least for two weeks as we walk through the book of Nahum. Approximately one generation after Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians regressed back to their old ways. And so nearly 200 years later, after the time of Jonah, we read here in Nahum of God delivering another message, not of divine mercy through a lone travelling preacher, but of divine justice through thousands of battle-hardened warriors, the Medes and the, and the Babylonians. Now, does this mean that Nineveh's repentance that we read about in Jonah chapter 3 wasn't genuine? Uh, no, I don't think it means that at all. So what does it mean? I think at least two things. Number one, that every generation must hear and heed the good news for themselves and that's anticipating what we see here in Nahum chapter 1, 15. Behold upon the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And number two, that God's mercy is never at the expense of God's justice. And if we're honest, I think it's here on the second point concerning this interrelationship of God's mercy and God's justice that we find ourselves to some degree unsettled by a book like Nahum, at least me with the force of the language here, and we're just warming up with chapter 1. If you want to go home and read the other two chapters, go for it. That's what we're looking at next week. We feel uncomfortable with the, the boast of bloodthirsty exploits, whether literal or hyperbolic. I don't think they are hyperbolic. When you look at some of the, the annals of Assyria and Babylon, that makes this stuff look like G-rated stuff from the Jews. But there's something unsettling about a book like Nahum, right? What are we to make of it then? Like, good luck preaching that one, David. <laughs> well, I think one way to step into a book like Nahum is to pivot from where we left off in Jonah. When we read a book like Jonah, all about the prodigal renegade prophet who runs away because he doesn't want God to show mercy to people outside of the covenant community of Israel, it's tempting to be critical of old Jonah as he sits there self-righteous and sulking on that hill outside of Nineveh. He's like the great example of how not to do missions, right? <laughs> but if reading Jonah reveals, in Jonah, a failure to understand the fullness of God's character, then what does reading Nahum reveal in us? We read a book like Jonah and see Jonah wants justice, but God delivers mercy. We read a book like Nahum and find that we want mercy, but God delivers justice. Do you see the extent to which we find ourselves unsettled with God's character in the book of Nahum? Reveals to us that we are perhaps more like Jonah than we care to admit. Sitting on that hill, 
sulking at the character of God. For whether it's a message of mercy like Jonah or a message of judgment like Nahum, that is ultimately the issue for both prophets, the character of God. We see this right here, straight out of the gate, verse 2, look at this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. This is all about the character of God. Above all else, this is an oracle concerning who the Lord is. The Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord takes, the Lord will. This is all about God's character. The greatest questions of human history are questions concerning the knowledge of God. Who is God? What is he like? How do I know if I've met him? Here Nahum gives us an incomplete acrostic poem in the Hebrew that runs down the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we see here, first of all, that God is a jealous and avenging God. Now, often we think of jealousy as a negative emotion, and there are plenty of proverbs that speak to that because human jealousy tends to be accompanied by sinful conduct. But I really like the way a faithful old preacher that I grew up listening to, David Pawson, describes Jealousy. He says, jealousy is wanting something that is rightfully yours as opposed to envy, which is wanting something that is not yours. Well, as it concerns God, the repeated idolatries of the people of Israel, as well as their takeover by the Assyrians, was tantamount to carrying the Lord's name into places where it never belonged. That is what blasphemy means, to carry the Lord's name into places where it doesn't belong. Nahum is reminding his readers here that God is jealous for his name, for his glory, for what is rightfully his, and he will not be mocked. If you've been watching the project in the last two weeks, you can see what mockery looks like of Christianity in this country. God will not be mocked. Now, is this vanity? Well, it would be for anyone apart from the one who can declare in truth, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, Isaiah 45.5. Sure, the Lord is jealous, but he's jealous for what is his, his own name. He is jealous and avenging and wrathful. The Lord's jealousy, it provokes his wrath. It provokes him to take vengeance on his adversaries, his enemies, But before we assume that he's doing that in any way that we might be inclined to do that, look at what it says next. The Lord is slow to anger. He doesn't react like we do, right? He's a little bit different. Now here in verse 3, we actually have an echo of Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The context of Exodus, it's not long after the golden calf incident where Moses um, asks God to show him his glory. And look at this parallel that we see here. I'm just going to read out Exodus, and you can see the rest on the screen. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we see a little down further. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Despite a few differences here and there, a few inclusions and exclusions, there is a clear allusion here in Nahum chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 34. Why would he be referring to that? Again, if this is concerning the glory of God, who God is. But, but notice he excludes a couple of things here concerning forgiveness, steadfast love. Now, does that mean that God isn't those things? No. It means that Nahum has a particular purpose and a particular occasion for what he's doing here in his work. Look what he says here. He is slow to anger, hence he did not you know, destroy Nineveh straight up. He delayed judgment for 200 years 
until the Medes and the Babylonians came to town. So God is gracious, but he is also just, and justice demands that sin cannot go unpunished, which is why Nahum lays it out here very clearly for us, that there is no mistaking the justice of God. That is the emphasis of Nahum. And it's not the only message of the minor prophets, you know, doom and gloom. If you go to the right-hand side of the Bible, this is there as well in the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Consider this from Paul, Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. The times of ignorance had passed for Nineveh. They had passed for Jonah that, that, because of Jonah having been there to teach and preach. They therefore could not claim ignorance. And now their day of judgment had come. Now, if this, again, makes us feel a little bit unsettled, and again, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say it does, I think we just need to step back a little bit and try and work through what Nahum is saying here. Just be at least brave enough to follow through the logic. Suppose, for example, that the day of judgment never did come for Assyria, for Nineveh. Suppose God in his wisdom just extended his mercy to the Assyrians without end. If God did that for Assyria, well, that, that would be great for the Assyrians, right? But what about the people of Israel? People of Judah? What about the people of Thebes? What about you if you were dwelling in a land under the oppression of Assyria? Assyria? What if you were ravaged by this lion and her cubs? You see, we read a book like Nahum and the intensity of the language, it puts the focus on the people of Nineveh who are being judged, who are subject to this onslaught of God's condemnation. But we need to remember who this book was written to, not the people of Nineveh, but the people of Judah, the oppressed. I used to love watching the news um, like I was obsessed with it, I always check in within like every hour. I've got to say though, over the last couple of years, maybe it's since I've become a dad, I don't know, uh, I, I just struggle to read the news. I think the news is changing a bit, but it's just so ugh, all the time. I try and keep tabs on, on certain things, but it's hard to scan the horizon around our world and to see the injustice. <laughs> To see the things that people worry about and to see the things that people should worry about. To see the oppression and to just be so inundated with suffering. If I'm honest, it affects me. It, it really does. I, I, it affects me. I feel helpless. I, I feel powerless to affect change in the world. Sometimes I feel like God doesn't even hear my prayers because no matter how much I pray about this stuff we do as a Bible study, nothing seems to change. Now, I know that's not true. I, I know that's not true. I have seen in my life prayers answered in amazing ways. I'm just saying that I feel like this sometimes, a lot of the time, pretty much every single day to some way or another. <laughs> I have unanswered prayers. I have questions. I have things that make me angry. I feel like the psalmist who says, Why, O Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why, O Lord, do you hide your face from me? Now, if I can feel like that from my comfortable suburban home in Newcastle, imagine what it must have been like for the people of Judah as they scanned the horizon of the world in their day. As they pled for mercy. You see, their plea for mercy is one and the same as a cry for justice. To help you feel the weight of this a little bit more, I want to read a lengthy quote from a guy called Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian Protestant theologian and public intellectual. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, a Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness and Reconciliation, it's a good book, he writes these words. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, 
God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's non-violence cannot resist using violence themselves or tactically sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that is that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. Now listen to what he says next. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Imagine you're in Ukraine right now, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. <laughs> wow, what a statement. The people of Judah who received Nathan's prophecy were living in the midst of extreme violence. It would be inappropriate, and I've read some crazy stuff from this pulpit before, it would be inappropriate for me to read to you some of the annals of Assyria. And here are the people of Judah. Do they have a perfect track record? No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but here are the people of Judah, hearing that their God, Yahweh, is on the move with a fist of fury against their enemies. This oracle would have been welcomed news. You see, it's not either mercy or justice. It's mercy and justice. These are twin aspects of God's good character. Judgment is not merely a grim or regrettable necessity in the economy of God. It is the keystone of social cohesion. It is the concern for the ultimate welfare of all humanity. It is the passion to do what is right in the face of evil. It is the enforcement of consequences for what is wrong. Justice is the distribution of mercy. Justice is the distribution of mercy. Mercy without justice is not merciful, it's sentimentality. Justice without mercy is not just, it's brutality. What God joins together, let us not separate, and we do it all the time in theology. The mercy of God and the justice of God are not mutually exclusive alternatives because they are both of God. We worship a God who is merciful and just. The Lord is slow to anger. There's the mercy. But the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. There's the justice. And the same power displayed in God's mercy is displayed in God's judgment. Look here, second half of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Think about that imagery. This language, this imagery, whirlwind, storm, this is straight out of Job. And it's imagery that carries over into the New Testament with Jesus being the Lord over the storm. Nahum is emphasising the greatness of God manifest in his mercy and his justice, his mercy for Judah, his justice or judgment of Assyria. But not only in word is the Lord like this, he is like this in action. Look here, verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. 
He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? His wrath is poured out like fire, the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The emphasis here is on the object of God's wrath, those whom he is judging. Seas and rivers often occur in parallel throughout Hebrew literature, just as God's action made a way through the Red Sea in the Exodus there. Uh, that was a redemption for the people of Israel, but it was simultaneously a judgment for Pharaoh as his chariots were drowned in the waters that came down. One divine action, two expressions of God's divine character in mercy and judgment. Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, these are some of the most fruitful, prosperous lands in all of Palestine. Palestine being the promised land of the people of Israel. So by referencing them here, Nahum's saying two things. Number one, he's reminding Judah that it is God who brought judgment upon northern Israel. But number two, it is God who is now bringing judgment on the Assyrians. And if you look at the, the annals in Assyria, you see this period of this time of drought. You can correspond this to the, the history books is what I'm saying. There were problems in the land at this time in terms of Assyria's prosperity. And look here, verse 5, the Lord shows up and mountains quake, hills melt, the earth heaves. If the most prosperous, fruitful lands in all of Palestine and the most secure, most important, most prominent parts of all creation shake before God, then who among us can stand before his indignation? Who among us can endure the heat of his anger? I stub my toe on a rock and I bleed. The rocks are broken to pieces by him. May we know the supremacy of this God. May we know the imponderable power with which he administers justice. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his judgments, his judgments. <laughs> How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, right-hand side of the Bible. Don't believe this lie that the whole left-hand side of the Bible is filled with the God of wrath and the right is a God of mercy. And yet we see here that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. No one can stand against the Lord, but we can stand in him. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, th I, I thought it was a man. <laughs> it, mm, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. You said anything about safe. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He is the king. He is the king, I tell you. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. As I was preparing for today, I listened to a chapel message that was delivered at Reformed Theological Seminary by Dr. Nicholas Reed, and he reminded me of the story of Binta, Bint, Binti, Binti Jua. Some of you may remember this. In 1996, Binti Jua was a then seven-year-old female gorilla on August the 16th, a three-year-old boy who was visiting the zoo where Binti was kept, just outside of Chicago, fell 24 feet, that's nearly seven and a half metres, into Binti's enclosure, to the horror of his family and those nearby. The boy was knocked out instantly. People didn't know if he was dead or alive. They just watched this limp body, helpless as they were, I mean, he, this kid is my son's age, right? Like, think of my son falling in like this. 
or your children. They couldn't do anything. They just watched down into this pit as Binti, a full-grown female gorilla, struts over to the boy. Despite screams from the spectators and cries from the family, Binti picks up this boy, cradles him, and carried him all the way across the enclosure towards the entrance where she laid him down by the door for the keepers of the zoo. Binti was an international hero. 20 years later, on May 28, 2016, another three-year-old boy fell into a gorilla enclosure, this time at Cincinnati. After 10 agonising minutes of watching a 200-kilogram male silverbacked named Arami interact with this boy, the decision was made by the zookeepers to shoot and kill the gorilla. What do we see between these two stories? Well, sure, a gorilla was good once, but can you really trust a gorilla to be good again? This is how we interact with God. He's not tame, I tell you. We are so vulnerable before him, before his awesome power that could crush us, but we have experienced his goodness. And sure, we've trusted him before. He's been faithful to us in the past, but when we're fallen into this pit of despair, when we are the ones that are broken, when we are the ones that are oppressed, when injustice comes upon us again, we find ourselves carried away beyond our control, wondering, can I really trust him this time? Because here's the thing, God may be untamed, but he's not unknown by us. He has demonstrated his faithfulness to us time and time and time again. Because look here, Nahum 1.7, God is good. It's not that God is good to us only once. It's not that God might be good to us sometime in the future. It's that the Lord is goodness. He has always been good. He will always be good and he'll never cease to be good. God's goodness speaks to his character. You can trust him in the dark of night on that lonely road in the paralysis of that heart and mind, you can trust him because he is good. He is untamed. But when he picks you up, he will cradle you in his arms. Don't fight back. You're not going to win that one. Don't necessarily, you can ask and cry and question where you're going, but don't resist. Embrace him and trust him. Do you see how Nahum is a message of comfort? Not for Assyria, but for Judah. With all of the force of the Hebrew language here, with all of these unsettling details, this oracle of Nahum, it must have been received by the people of Judah like cool water on cracked lips. In the midst of great suffering, in the midst of watching the wicked prosper, in the midst of tortured doubt and wondering if prayers were even going to be answered or heard, there is comfort for the people of Judah for the people of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, in knowing the fullness of the character of God. It doesn't help to know that God is merciful if he isn't just. It doesn't help to know that God is just if he isn't merciful. And it does not help to know that God is both merciful and just if he isn't powerful enough to see these two things through in your life, in his providential administration of the world. Our God is not tame, but he is good. He knows those who take refuge in him. Like a father to a child. Think about your own emotion if that was your child that fell into the cage. God has that in a way that is unadulterated by sin for you. Verses 8 through 11, we see the continuation of God's actions against his adversaries. With an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dry. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counsellor. Uh, the language of flood here, it's an echo of the prophet Isaiah, who portrayed the expansion of the Assyrian Empire like a flood. See chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah. 
But as Isaiah says there later on in chapter 29, Lord, you are the Lord who, quote, turns things upside down. (laughs) And that is what we have here from verses 12 through 14, the great reversal of the tide that is the Assyrian flood against Israel. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off from you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given command about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. He's talking to Assyria. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Uh, Something I've been very convicted of lately, you probably hear me sharing it in my sermons, is just how subversive the gospel of Jesus Christ is. How it, it undermines and turns upside down our knowledge, the power structures of individuals and institutions all around this world, the established norms and values of human societies. It doesn't destroy them, but it subverts them in a way that radically fulfills them. Just take justice as an example. There is so much talk of justice today, so much. And ironically, we we are so unjust in the way we disagree with our causes of justice. (laughs) The Bible is not against justice. We've just been reading a very uncomfortable chapter about it. But it subverts our understanding of justice in a way that we didn't necessarily expect. And the question that you need to answer for yourself is whether or not you're willing to lay down your ideas of justice or whatever it is at the foot of the cross and have God fill your wisdom concerning who he is. Again and again and again, we're told of this subversive idea throughout the scriptures, how the rich will be made poor and the poor will become rich, how pride comes before the fall, how the first are last and the last will be made first, how in weakness there is strength and in folly, wisdom, how God exalts the humble, how God brings dead people to life. Every false pretense raise against the good news of Jesus Christ, God will turn upside down. And this is code for his messianic kingdom, where the lion will sit with the lamb, where a holy and righteous God will walk and talk with his people, characterised by his goodness because of his actions, singing songs about his victory, And so we have that here now, verse 15, God's victory. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. For many reasons, I think verse 15 here is the summary verse of the entire book of Nahum. It's an announcement of victory. God's character is good. God's actions are in accordance with his character, which is good. And now we read that God's victory is good news. You know, they didn't have smartphones in the 7th century BC. News took a while to arrive. It travelled by foot, by means of a messenger. And for the oppressed to hear of Nineveh's destruction would have been welcomed news. What we have here, however, is more than just an immediate message to the people of Judah. This is another echo of Isaiah, Isaiah 52. I'll just read from verse 4 there. For thus says the Lord, my people went down at the first sight into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What is the content of the good news? Your God reigns. God, whose character is good, whose actions are good, and whose victory is good news, that God reigns. In its most simplest, this is the gospel, the announcement God reigns. 
Paul makes this connection in Romans 10. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When you get something repeated three times in Scripture, underline it. Notice we don't achieve the good news, by the way. We don't fight to achieve this peace. We publish it. We behold it. We are called to seek justice, to do justice, but ultimately it is God who administers justice because he is the God who reigns. He is the king of the kingdom. It's not our job to be judge and jury of everyone, to fight for our Christian rights. I'm not a pacifist. But when you and I, you know, when we share the good news of Jesus with our friends and our families, we are messengers of good news. We are ambassadors of that good news. We do not build God's kingdom ourselves as though we're the ones putting down the blocks. We have the joy of proclaiming his kingdom and it is to that end of preaching the good news that we participate in God's kingdom program. But it is his name that is hallowed. It is the prayer that his kingdom would come and it is the prayer that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we look at the news today, if you're like me and you find yourself overwhelmed by looking at the news or whatever it is, your friends, your family, your home situation, I don't know, whatever it is, and, and you just weep because you can't save people, you just want to help them but you can't do anything and you pray about it and you feel like the doors just closed on you, we need to remember that we were never called to save anyone as Christians. We're ambassadors of the Saviour. We aren't the ones that do the saving. Who am I to think that I can change the world? God uses us, but it's, it's him who does the work. It's his action because he is good. So next time I see the wicked prospering, the oppressor oppressing, I should think, not that God isn't doing anything. I should be reminded that God has fixed a day when he will he will, not me, he will judge. And he will judge it rightly because shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Genesis 18. When I am on the receiving end of injustice, when, when I am oppressed, persecuted, we should remember the words of Paul, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Can you do that? Like really? I have no clue, man, what's going to come your way in Africa. But like to pray that, that's hard work. Again, I don't think that's teaching pacifism. I don't think that's denying self-defense or anything like that. But the principle is clear. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, therefore, this is like the attitude you should have. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. And you can almost summarise it here in one sentence. In all things, my insertion, just remember, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm thinking of Ephesians 4. Don't give the enemy a foothold in your life of bitterness and unforgiveness. Overcome evil with God, who is good with God whose actions are good and with God's announcement of victory, which is good and it is yours in Christ Jesus. You can do this because God's character is good, because his actions are good, because his news is good. This is Nahum. This is the comforter. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, uh, I come out of a text like that a little bit tired. Uh, I don't know where people are coming at as they hear a message like this, what's going on for them in the immediate future, in their homes, in their workplaces. Uh, God, I, I am finding myself challenged by this because I honestly just don't want to be laying down my own spears when people come at me. It's just not my natural tendency. So I repent. I'm reminded, Lord, from your word today that you are 
the only one who can be called good, that the administration of your goodness in justice may not be something that in my limited local understanding I would do, but I'm not you. And shame on me for thinking that I am, (laughs) that I know what's best for me. I pray, Father, that as much as me, anyone else here would just be compelled by your word today to confess when we try to control things ourselves and be willing to let it go. Not into the unknown, not into the abyss, not into ignorance, not into faith without reason, but into faith that is fueled with all of the reason that you have given us in your scriptures as to who you are and what you've done. As I think about the awesomeness of your judgment in the truly awe-inspiring sense of the term, uh, it makes me just appreciate all the more what it is that you've done on that cross of Calvary. Lord, when Jesus himself took upon himself the wrath and the fury of the Father, that should have been on me. Lord, you died in our place. What a price. And yet here I am struggling sometimes to see your justice when really all along that's something that I should have received. Lord, may I just be compelled to love you even more as I read words like this in Nahum. May we all be like that, to want to know the fullness of who you are, even the parts that reflect Uh, in a harsh way upon our own shortcomings, especially there, that we may be willing to flee to you and find refuge in you because you are good and you know us. Lord, be with us now as we go out into our weeks ahead, uh, come back for round two next week. Um, Just be working on us in our own places and spaces in whatever it is that you've called us to do and that we may be prayerfully reflecting on a word like this from Nahum about you who are good, whose actions are good and whose news is good and how that translates into the ways we understand what's going on in our little spheres of life. Lord, that in all things we would look to you and trust you even when we can't see beyond our own navel. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.